Jesus says in Matthew 5.38, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is not just a proverb that was circulating among the Jews from some unknown source. Exodus 21.24 reads as follows, Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Leviticus 24 and verse 20 reads as follows. Beginning at verse uh, 19. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. And Deuteronomy 19, 21 reads as follows. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth, his listeners would have understood this to be one of the things that was stated in Old Testament law. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not undermining Old Testament law, or giving a new superior law per se. We might concede that the Sermon on the Mount contains a fuller and more penetrating exposition of God's law than had yet been given. But as to the matter itself, we can't say that the Sermon on the Mount contradicts God's law as given in the Old Testament, nor can we say that the Sermon on the Mount contains anything actually new, which God had never required before. So what then of the You have heard it said, but I say to you, statements, which are repeated throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Allow me a lengthy quote from John Calvin, presenting the historical Reformed understanding. It is a mistake to suppose that this is a correction of the law, and that Christ raises his disciples to a higher degree of perfection. It has been a prevailing opinion that the beginning of righteousness was laid down in ancient law, but that the perfection of it is pointed out in the gospel. But nothing was farther from the design of Christ than to alter or innovate anything in the commandments of the law. There, God has fixed the rule of life, which he will never retract. But as the law had been corrupted by false expositions and turned to a profane meaning, Christ vindicates it against such corruptions and points out its true meaning from which the Jews had departed. In other words, the Jews had become confused about what God required, suffering under the erroneous teachings of the religious leaders of the day. Jesus does not teach anything contrary to or additional to God's law. Instead, the Sermon on the Mount clears away the debris that obscured God's law and reproclaims it, albeit in different words or from a different angle. 
It's as if the Ten Commandments tell you what not to do. Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, and so on and so forth. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, tells you what you ought to be doing. Be pure in heart, hunger and thirst for righteousness, so on and so forth. So Jesus is not correcting the law, nor is He adding to the law, raising it to a higher level, or anything like that. He's simply clearing away the uh, obfuscations that the religious leaders of the day had put in the way of the law, which confused it and changed its meaning. And um, Jesus is basically clarifying. I'm not going to argue that understanding here tonight, as that's a subject for another time. Instead, I'm just going to assume it as we focus on our text. But I mention it because it's helpful for you to understand where I'm coming from as we exposit this passage of Scripture. So if it is the case, and it is the case, that Jesus is clearing away misconceptions, then what was the misconception surrounding the principle, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? which was drawn from Exodus 21-24, Leviticus 24-20, and Deuteronomy 19 and verse 21. The misconception was that private persons were entitled to take vengeance for themselves. The misconception was that private persons were entitled to take vengeance for themselves. Matthew Poole comments, The Pharisees had interpreted this law of God into a liberty for every private person who had been wronged by another to exact a satisfaction upon him, provided that he did not exceed this proportion of taking an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, doing no more wrong to another than that other had done to him. In other words, the Pharisee said, if your neighbor steals some water that you left out in a bucket last night and you go and steal some water that someone left out in a bucket tonight that's fine an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth that kind of thing if your neighbor causes you some kind of disturbance maybe his uh, doesn't clean up enough after his chickens or his dogs are barking too loud or whatever and you cause your neighbor some kind of disturbance that's equally commensurate to try to get back at them. Well, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This was the sort of interpretation that the Pharisees had put on this law of God from the Old Testament. The problem with this interpretation, Poole points out, is that God had indeed commanded the magistrate to exact punishment according to this principle. But God had commanded private persons in Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And in Proverbs 24.29, do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay back, the, I will pay the man back for what he has done. Do not say that. In their society, as in ours, there came to be the toleration of the bearing of a personal grudge. Well, it's only reasonable. After all, look at everything that that person has done to them. It came to be accepted that persons feud. 
and families feud. And one seeks to pay back the other for what had been done to them. Well, it's only reasonable. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Sometimes this sort of thing even resulted in vigilante justice. And this too was tolerated. And so your neighbor or someone in your neighborhood catches you what late coming home late one night, beats you up and steals your wallet. Next thing, you go and find your friends and go and deal with your neighbor the next night. And people say, well, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is what was going on in ancient Israel. But as we've seen, this is not what God had commanded. God had commanded the magistrate to apply justice in this fashion. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. God had commanded private persons, you shall not take vengeance. God had commanded private persons, do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. The Pharisees justified the breach of God's law, ironically, by quoting God's law. This is the perversion that Jesus is clearing up here in the Sermon on the Mount. In its place, in the place of this misunderstanding, Jesus teaches that we should rather endure wrongs and even permit further wrongs to be committed against us rather than retaliate with personal vengeance. We should not take vengeance into our own hands. Quoting from Matthew Poole again, he says, No injury can deserve a private revenge. Let that sink into your ears. No injury can deserve a private revenge. According to Poole, we either bring our case before the magistrate in weighty cases, or we take it on the chin if it's a smaller matter. He says light injuries are not of that nature that we should contend for a public revenge of them. So, your neighbor steals some a bucket of rainwater that you had been collecting for whatever purpose. If you see fit, take it to the magistrate. If it's not worth that, let it be. Light injuries are not of that nature that we should contend for a public revenge of them. Doesn't mean we can't speak to our neighbor about it. Even Jesus and Paul show us that it's permissible to speak when injustices are committed Against Jesus in his trial says, why did you strike me? Right? And Paul re- repeatedly says, what, what charge are you bringing against me? Is it lawful for you to flog a Roman citizen? And the like. You could go to your neighbor and speak about the collected rainwater, but if they won't listen, you're not at liberty to take personal vengeance. At first glance, this sounds... Pretty reasonable and doable, doesn't it? But consider the following applications of this idea. If you decide not to take the matter to court, you must not do anything negative towards the person who did something wrong to you. Bearing a personal grudge over some previous offense, which leads you to act negatively towards anyone, is wrong. 
even if the court gets the verdict wrong, whether intentionally or not, you are still not permitted to take justice into your own hands. All of a sudden, it doesn't sound quite so easy. It's not just a little push, because we might not just be talking about a little collection of rainwater. We might not be talking about something trivial that you can overlook. It might be something reasonably serious. It might even be a criminal offense, which you just don't have enough evidence for to get a conviction or to even press charges and prosecute in the first place. You may either prosecute your offender in court or take it on the chin, turning the other cheek or going the extra mile. And if someone gets your tunic in the court of law, look, it says, if someone would sue you and take your tunic, so we're talking about in the court of law, let him have your cloak as well. The meaning of this seems to be that if someone gets your tunic in a court of law, via an unjust verdict and goes after your cloak too submit to the process anyway and give whatever's necessary rather than taking personal revenge so the court case doesn't come out in your favor that wasn't your that wasn't merely your first recourse that was your only recourse and so give up your tunic give up your cloak too if that's what happens in the courts as a result of this lawsuit. In other words, we must be ready to suffer injustice rather than to insist on justice in such a way that we take it into our own hands. We leave it in the magistrate's hands and ultimately God's and we refuse to avenge ourselves. Personal vengeance is prohibited by this passage of Scripture. And that's a difficult pill for many of us, including myself, to swallow. I find this personally to be one of the most challenging teachings in all of Scripture. Now, verse 42 might seem unrelated. It pertains to giving and lending rather than suffering offenses. It says, give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. However, it's not unrelated. The connection here is that, again, we are not people, we are not to be people who insist strictly on justice in our dealings with others, but people who are characterized by mercy and grace. Negatively, we spare our offenders the punishment that they are owed by rights. We refuse to take personal vengeance upon them. Positively, we give to beggars and borrowers what we do not owe them. Nobody can demand charity from you. Nobody can demand a loan from you. But what Jesus is teaching here is that we ought to, when we're able, both give and lend. So we are not to be people who insist strictly on justice in our dealings with others. But people who are characterized by mercy and grace. We ought to be ready, quick even, to suffer wrongs of a lighter nature. Rather than to seek public recourse 
or personal vengeance. We ought to desire and be quick to be merciful and gracious in our dealings with others. The aim is that we should be peaceable, gracious people. The gospel ought not to make us pugnacious. And I use that word intentionally because the root of it is the same root from which we get the word pugilism, which is another word for boxing. So a pugilist is a boxer. Pugilism is the sport of boxing. And we don't pronounce the G the same way, but pugnacious comes from the same root. Pugilistic, pugnacious, ready to fight. The gospel ought not to make us pugnacious people, but peaceable people. We have to be peaceable rather than pugnacious. The gospel ought not to make us primarily seekers of justice for wrongs committed against us, but rather seekers after grace for those who have wronged us. We ought to be more prepared to take a blow than to deal one. Now, will that make a good pugilist? No. For those of you who may not be familiar with combat sports, the goal is to punch your opponent more than you get punched. So to be quicker to take a blow than to give one doesn't make you a good pugilist. But it does make you a good Christian. The gospel ought to make us readier to take a blow than to deliver one. It ought to make us peaceable people rather than pugnacious people. Now I should be clear. There is a time and a place to seek justice. Seek civil justice for serious wrongs. By all means, prosecute, press charges when something criminal has happened. That is not prohibited by this passage. In fact, quite the opposite. God commanded the magistrate in the Old Testament to exercise this justice, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Jesus isn't changing the function of retributive justice in human society by the Sermon on the Mount. He's actually recovering that understanding that it is the magistrate's role to do that, but not yours. And so, by all means, seek an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, so long as it's the magistrate who pokes out the eye and pulls the tooth. And not you that pokes the eye and pulls out the tooth of your neighbor. To prosecute, to press charges in a serious issue is not wrong. In fact, it's a healthy and acceptable thing. And plead with God for justice, for serious wrongs. To be sure, the promise that justice will be done is a wonderful promise of God. It says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To know that even if we don't get personal vengeance, even if the courts get it wrong, that God will see to it that justice is done in the end is a great comfort to us when we have suffered serious wrongs. 
Sometimes people are victims of very serious crimes where either evidence can't be marshaled enough to get a conviction or even perhaps to press a charge. Or perhaps the offender is an anonymous person and it's not even known who committed the offense. In such cases, we know that the Lord sees, the Lord knows, and the Lord will call to account. And so we can pray to the God of justice that justice will be done in the end. So there is a time and a place to seek justice. And Calvin notes on this passage that Jesus doesn't require us to refrain from defending and protecting ourselves from those who would abuse us. We don't have to let abusers abuse us. We don't have to let scammers scam us. When it says give to everyone who asks from you, it doesn't mean that you need to give your bank account to the next son of a wealthy prince from Nigeria who emails you. You understand? The next phone call that you get saying that they are desperately relying on you to clear a shipment of diamonds. And all you need to do is provide your credit card number. This passage doesn't mean you must give to those who ask. This passage doesn't require us to let abusers abuse us and let scammers scam us. We are allowed to say no in preservation of life and property in such cases. And in the moment to defend ourselves when the no is not respected. So if somebody attacks you, this, this passage doesn't prohibit self-defense. The point is not um, that if somebody punches you that you literally do not punch them back or that you literally turn the other cheek if it's a, an issue of an ongoing attack. But the issue is, it's not after the fact, you're not coming back. You don't, you don't get that kickback or that blowback from Christians. That's what happens when gangs feud, right? They take out one of your guys, you take out one of their guys, right? Or that saying, right? You, you put one of our guys in the hospital, we put one of your guys in the morgue. That's not how Christians deal. Right? And so this passage is not teaching us that self-defense is prohibited. And we are allowed to prosecute after the fact when someone has wronged us. So in the moment we may defend ourselves, after the fact we may prosecute ourselves. But as Poole said, no injury can deserve a private revenge that's what this passage is dealing with our personal dealings justice is good justice is right and justice is coming with Jesus on the clouds it's okay to long for that day and to take advantage of the function of the magistrate who doesn't bear the sword in vain in the meantime but listen Overlook microaggressions in the meantime. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Don't be easily offended. Don't withhold good from people when it's in your power to do so. Again, this give to everyone who asks from you doesn't mean you should hold yourself up in your house lest you go into town and give away all your money and then you're going to be broke and not be able to feed your family and so on and so forth. Calvin presses the point that 
Sort of like with the parable, we don't press every detail of the parable. So it is with this passage. It's like we don't press every detail to its absurd extent. We get the gist of what Jesus is saying in this section. And when we understand the, the um, twisting and the perversion that the Pharisees had put upon this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth principle, and what it is that Jesus is trying to recover, then the meaning of this passage is apparent enough. And so we deal with mercy and grace, withholding vengeance from those to whom by rights it is due. And we give that which is not owed to those who ask. If a person's in need and can't pay you back, and you're able, help them. If a person is likely to be able to pay you back and asks to borrow because they're in some kind of need, you don't owe it to them to do that. But we should be people that are characterized by mercy and grace who want to help. That we're not insisting always on strict justice. My money's my money. I'm not lending it to you. I'm not giving it to you. You did something wrong to me. I'm going to do something wrong to you. Always justice on the negative side, on the positive side. Always just justice. We're not supposed to be those kinds of people. We're supposed to be the kind of people that love mercy and grace, withholding that which is unpleasant from those who by rights deserve it, giving that which is good to those who by rights don't deserve it, are not obligated to receive it. Deal primarily in mercy and grace. In that sense... Notwithstanding everything I said about justice, bear that in mind. But in that sense, the gospel ought to make us, ought not to make us people characterized as justice warriors, but as grace and mercy warriors. We can get these emphases wrong. In the gospel, Christian, you have received so much mercy and grace. God has dealt so abundantly with you. You deserved to go to hell. Consider what aggressions you have committed against God. None of which are microaggressions. Consider that you have profoundly violated God's law. That you deserve to burn in eternity. That you are a needy beggar who had committed atrocities against the one from whom you were asking for charity. But God has spared you what you, were, what you deserved, the punishment that you deserved. And God has given you the charity that you so desperately needed. In the gospel, you have received so much grace and mercy. Jesus came and lived to offer up to God the righteousness in your place as your covenant head, Christian, as your representative, that you did not offer up to God, but should have. Jesus died drinking that cup of God's wrath down to the dregs that by rights you should have drank. Jesus went down into the grave and He rose from the dead. And He says, whoever believes in Me even though he dies, yet shall he live. This is your hope now because of what Jesus has done for you. Consider the mercy and the grace 
as opposed to the strict justice that you could have received, consider the mercy and the grace that you have received in the gospel. Consider then how ludicrous it would be for you to go around insisting on strict justice in every case, in terms of everybody who sins against you in whatever way. For you to be stingy with your money when somebody's in need and you say, I'm not going to, that's too costly for me to do for them. Look at the cost that God has paid for you. How generous God has been with you. Why are you going to be so stingy with others? Consider just how incompatible with the gospel it is to go around in your personal dealings always focused on justice. What people owe you. What people deserve to get. If they deserve it, I'll help them. If they don't deserve it, I won't help them. Consider just how wrong that mindset is in view of the grace and the mercy that you have received. It's like the parable of the unforgiving servant. The man is forgiven a huge debt that he never could have paid. But he goes out in the street and finds someone who owes him like $500. Not a, not a small sum, but also nothing compared to the debt that would have taken him a few lifetimes to repay. He's been forgiven this enormous, gargantuan sum and he goes and puts his debtor in jail over this $500 debt. Jesus tells that parable to make the same point that he's making here. You need to be gracious people. You need to be merciful people. Withholding vengeance from those whom it is due and giving people what you don't strictly owe them in situations where it's wise and you're able and so on and so forth. This is the thrust of this passage. We're not to be people who insist strictly on justice in our personal dealings with people, but people who are characterized by mercy and grace. It doesn't preclude seeking legal justice or divine justice in serious cases. But we ought to be ready, quick even, to suffer wrongs of a lighter nature rather than seek public recourse or personal vengeance. We ought to desire and be quick to be merciful and gracious in our dealings with others. Negatively, we spare our offenders the punishment they're due. Positively, we give to beggars and borrowers what we do not strictly owe them. And we are this way, or we ought to be this way, because of how God in Christ has dealt with us. It's only fitting. It's only consistent. We should be peaceable people, not pugnacious people.